Hey sis, welcome back to Girl Goodnight. I'm Return of Lamac, and every Sunday you can relax to binaural beats while I read you a melanated bedtime story. Tap into this show on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. All links will be in the episode description. Submit original work and future episode suggestions to girlgoodnightpodcasts at gmail.com. Help your friends sleep in melanated peace. Girl, share the show and show us some love with a five-star rating and review. Tonight, we will be reading Kane, written by Jean Toomer in 1923. Jean Toomer was born as Nathan Pinchback Toomer on December 26, 1894 in Washington, D.C. to mixed-race parents. Nathan began to use the name Jean as his literary career began. Growing up, Toomer attended all-black and all-white schools and refused to associate himself with race. Rather, he classified himself as American. He attended many colleges and universities and studied various topics from science to history, but did not complete a degree program. In 1921, Toomer went to Sparta, Georgia to become a principal at a rural agricultural and industrial school for blacks. While in Georgia, he learned more about his father's ancestry in Hancock County and came to the realization that he was able to pass for white. These experiences led him to a closer association with his Negro identity and inspired his most famous work, Cain, which solidified his position in the Harlem Renaissance. In his later years, Toomer delved into the study of various spiritualities and religions, which his work reflected. In 1934, he joined the Religious Society of Friends and began his life as a Quaker. In 1950, he stopped writing for publication and wrote several autobiographies and a book of poetry entitled The Wayward and the Seeking. On March 30, 1967, he died at age 72 from various health complications. Cain is a body of work known as a composite novel or short story cycle. It gained this classification due to its series of vignettes ranging from narrative prose, poetry, and play-like passages of dialogue surrounding the experiences of Black Americans. It is divided into three sections. The first details the experiences of Black Americans in the Southern farmland. The second details the urban life for Black Americans in the North. The last is comprised of the prose, Cabness. The novel has been quoted as a mysterious brand of Southern psychological realism that has been matched only in the best work of William Faulkner. Now, close your eyes, take a deep breath, and sleep in melanated peace. Forward. Reading this book, I had the vision of a land heretofore sunk in the mists of muteness, suddenly rising up into the eminence of song. Innumerable books have been written about the South. Some good books have been written in the South. This book is the South. I do not mean that Cain covers the South or is the South's full voice. Merely this, a poet has arisen among our American youth who has known how to turn the essences and materials of his Southland into the essences and materials of literature. A poet has arisen in that land who writes, not as a Southerner, not as a rebel against Southerners, not as a Negro, not as an apologist or priest or critic, 
who writes as a poet. The fashioning of beauty is ever foremost in his inspiration, not forcedly, but simply. And because of these ultimate aspects of his world are to him more real than all its specific problems. He has made songs and lovely stories of his land, not of its yesterday, but of its immediate life. And that has been enough. How rare this is will be clear to those who have followed with concern the struggle of the South toward literary expression and the particular trial of that portion of its folk whose skin is dark. The gifted Negro has been too often thwarted from becoming a poet because his world was forever forcing him to recollect that he was a Negro. The artist must lose such lesser identities in the great well of life. The English poet is not forever protesting and recalling that he is English. It is so natural and easy for him to be English that he can sing as a man. The French novelist is not forever noting, this is French. It is so atmospheric for him to be French that he can devote himself to saying, this is human. This is an imperative condition for the creating of deep art. The whole will and mind of the creator must go below the surfaces of race. And this has been an almost impossible condition for the American Negro to achieve, forced every moment of his life into a specific and superficial plane of consciousness. The first negative significance of Cain is that this so natural and restrictive state of mind is completely lacking. For Toomer, the Southland is not a problem to be solved. It is a field of loveliness to be sung. The Georgia Negro is not a downtrodden soul to be uplifted. He is material for gorgeous painting. The segregated self-conscious brown belt of Washington is not a topic to be discussed and exposed. It is a subject of beauty and of drama, worthy of creation in literary form. It seems to me, therefore, that this is a first book in more ways than one. It is a harbinger of the South's literary maturity, of its emergence from the obsession put upon its minds by the unending racial crisis, an obsession from which writers have made their indirect escape through sentimentalism, exoticism, polemic, problem fiction, and moral melodrama. It marks the dawn of direct and unafraid creation and, as the initial work of a man of 27, it is the harbinger of a literary force of whose incalculable future I believe no reader of this book will be in doubt. How typical is Cain of the South's still virgin soil and of its pressing seeds? In the book's chaos of verse, tale, drama, its rhythmic rolling shift from lyrism to narrative, from mystery to intimate pathos. But read the book through and you will see a complex and significant form take substance from its chaos. Part one is the primitive and evanescent black world of Georgia. Part two is the threshing and suffering brown world of Washington, lifted by opportunity and contact into the anguish of self-conscious struggle. Part three is Georgia again, the invasion into this black womb of the ferment seed, the neurotic, educated, spiritually stirring Negro. As a broad form, this is superb, and the very looseness and unexpected waves of the book's parts make Cain still more South, still more of an aesthetic equivalent of the land. What a land it is. What an Achillean beauty to its fateful problem. 
Those of you who love our South will find here some of your love. Those of you who know it not will perhaps begin to understand what a warm splendor is at last at dawn. A feast of moon and men, embarking hounds, an orgy for some genius of the South with bloodshot eyes and cane lips scented mouth, surprised in making folk songs. So, in his still sometimes clumsy stride, for Toomer is finally a poet in prose, the author gives you an inkling of his revelation, an individual force wise enough to drink humbly at this great spring of his land. Such is the impression of Gene Toomer. But beyond this wisdom and this power, which shows itself perhaps most splendidly in his complete freedom from the sense of persecution, there rises a figure more significant, the artist, self-emulating, the artist who is not interested in races, whose domain is life. The book's final part is no longer promise, it is achievement. It is no mere dawn, it is a bit of the full morning. These materials, the ancient black man, mute, inaccessible, and yet so mystically close to the new tumultuous members of his race, the simple slave past, the shedding Negro present, the iridescent passionate dream of the tomorrow are made and measured by a craftsman into an unforgettable music. The notes of his counterpoint are particular. The themes are of intimate connection with us Americans, but the result is the abstract and absolute thing called art. Waldo Frank. Carintha. Her skin is like dusk on the eastern horizon. Oh, can't you see it? Oh, can't you see it? Her skin is like dusk on the eastern horizon when the sun goes down. Men had always wanted her, this Carintha, even as a child, Carintha carrying beauty, perfect as dusk when the sun goes down. Old men rode her hobby horse upon their knees. Young men danced with her at frolics when they should have been dancing with their grown-up girls. God grant us youth, secretly prayed the old men. The young fellows counted the time to pass before she would be old enough to mate with them. This interest of the male, who wishes to ripen a growing thing too soon, could mean no good to her. Carintha, at twelve, was a wild flash that told the other folks just what it was to live. At sunset, when there was no wind, and the pine smoke from over by the sawmill hugged the earth, and you couldn't see more than a few feet in front, her sudden darting past you was a bit of vivid color, like a blackbird that flashes in light. With the other children, one could hear, some distance off, their feet flopping in the two-inch dust. Carintha's running was a whir. It had the sound of the red dust that sometimes makes a spiral in the road. At dusk, during the hush just after the sawmill had closed down and before any of the women had started their super getting ready songs, her voice, high-pitched, shrill, would put one's ears to itching, but no one ever thought to make her stop because of it. She stoned the cows and beat her dog and fought with the other children. Even the preacher, who caught her at mischief, told himself that she was as innocently lovely as a November cotton flower. 
Already, rumors were out about her. Homes in Georgia are most often built on the two-room plan. In one, you cook and eat. In the other, you sleep. And their love goes on. Corintha had seen or heard. Perhaps she had felt her parents loving. One could but imitate one's parents, for to follow them was the way of God. She played home with a small boy who was not afraid to do her bidding. That started the whole thing. Old men could no longer ride her hobby horse upon their knees, but young men counted faster. Her skin is like dusk. Oh, can't you see it? Her skin is like dusk when the sun goes down. Corintha is a woman, she who carries beauty, perfect as dusk when the sun goes down. She has been married many times. Old men remind her that a few years back, they rode her hobby horse upon their knees. Corintha smiles and indulges them when she's in the mood for it. She has contempt for them. Corintha is a woman. Young men run stills to make her money. Young men go to the big cities and run on the road. Young men go away to college. They all want to bring her money. These are the young men who thought that all they had to do was to count time. But Corintha is a woman and she has a child. A child fell out of her womb onto a bed of pine needles in the forest. Pine needles are smooth and sweet. They are elastic to the feet of rabbits. A sawmill was nearby. Its pyramidal sawdust pile smoldered. It is a year before one completely burns. Meanwhile, the smoke curls up and hangs in odd brace about the trees, curls up and spreads itself out over the valley. Weeks after Corintha returned home, the smoke was so heavy you tasted it in water. Someone made a song. Smoke is on the hills, rise up. Smoke is on the hills, oh rise and take my soul to Jesus. Corintha is a woman. Men do not know that the soul of her was a growing thing ripened too soon. They will bring their money. They will die not having found it out. Corintha, at 20, carrying beauty, perfect as dusk when the sun goes down. Corintha. Her skin is like dusk on the eastern horizon. Oh, can't you see it? Oh, can't you see it? Her skin is like dusk on the eastern horizon. When the sun goes down, goes down. Reapers. Black reapers with the sound of steel on stones after sharpening skites. I see them place the hones in their hip pockets as a thing that's done and start their swinging one by one. Black horses drive a mower through the weeds and there a field rat, startled, squealing bleeds. His belly close to ground, I see the blade, bloodstained, continue cutting weeds in shade. November cotton flower. Bull weevils come in and the winter's cold. Made cotton stalks look rusty, seasons old. 
and cotton, scarce as any southern snow, was vanishing the branch so pinched and slow, failed in its function as the autumn rate. Drought-fighting soil had caused the soil to take. All water from the streams, dead birds were found, in wells a hundred feet below the ground. Such was the season when the flower bloomed. Old folks were startled and it soon assumed. Significance. Superstition saw something it had never seen before. Brown eyes that loved without a trace of fear. Beauty so sudden for that time of year. Becky. Becky was the white woman who had two Negro sons. She's dead. They've gone away. The pines whisper to Jesus. The Bible flaps its leaves with an aimless rustle on her mound. Becky had one Negro son. Who gave it to her? Damn buck nigger, said the white folks' mouths. She wouldn't tell. Common, godforsaken, insane white shameless wench, said the white folks' mouths. Her eyes were sunken, her neck stringy, her breasts fallen till then. Taking their words, they filled her like a bubble rising. Then she broke, mouth setting in a twist that held her eyes, harsh, vacant, staring. Who gave it to her? Low-down nigger with no self-respect, said the black folks' mouths. She wouldn't tell. Poor Catholic, poor white, crazy woman, said the black folks' mouths. White folks and black folks built her cabin, fed her and her growing baby, prayed secretly to God who'd put his cross upon her and cast her out. When the first was born, the white folks said they'd have no more to do with her. And black folks, they too joined hands to cast her out. The pines whispered to Jesus. The railroad boss said not to say he said it, but she could live if she wanted to on the narrow strip of land between the railroad and the road. John Stone, who owned the lumber and the bricks, would have shot the man who told he gave the stuff to Lonnie Deacon, who stole out there at night and built the cabin. A single room held down to earth. Old flyaway to Jesus by a leaning chimney. Six trains each day rumbled past and shook the ground under her cabin. Fords and horse and mule drawn buggies went back and forth along the road. No one ever saw her. Trainmen and passengers who'd heard about her threw out papers and food, threw out little crumpled slips of paper scribbled with prayers as they passed her eye-shaped piece of sandy ground. Ground islandized between the road and the railroad track, pushed up where a blue-sheen god with listless eyes could look at it. Folks from the town took turns, unknown, of course, to each other, in bringing corn and meat and sweet potatoes. Even sometimes snuff. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Old David Georgia, grinding cane and boiling syrup, never went her way without some sugar sap. No one ever saw her. The boy grew up and ran around. When he was five years old, as folks reckoned it, Hugh Jordan saw him carrying a baby. Becky has another son, was what the whole town knew. But nothing was said. For the part of man that says things to the likes of that had told itself that if there was a Becky, that Becky was now dead. The two boys grew, sullen and cunning. Old pines whispered to Jesus. 
Tell him to come and press sweet Jesus' lips against their lips and eyes. It seemed as though with those two big fellows there, there could be no room for Becky. The part that prayed and wondered if perhaps she'd really died and they had buried her. No one dared ask. They'd beat and cut a man who meant nothing at all in mentioning that they lived along the road. White or colored? No one knew, and least of all themselves. They drifted around from job to job. We, who had cast out their mother because of them, could we take them in? They answered black and white folks by shooting up two men and leaving town. Goddamn the white folks. Goddamn the niggers, they shouted as they left town. Becky? Smoke curled up from her chimney. She must be there. Trains passing shook the ground. The ground shook the leaning chimney. Nobody noticed it. A creepy feeling came over all who saw that thin wraith of smoke and felt the trembling of the ground. Folks began to take her food again. They quit it soon because they had a fear. Becky, if dead, might be a haunt, and if alive, it took some nerve to even mention it. Opines whispered to Jesus. It was Sunday. Our congregation had been visiting at Pulverton and were coming home. There was no wind. The autumn sun, the bell from Ebenezer Church, listless and heavy. Even the pines were stale, sticky, like the smell of food that makes you sick. Before we turned the bend of the road that would show us the Becky cabin, the horses stopped stock still, pushed back their ears, and nervously whinnied. We urged them, then whipped them on. Quarter of a mile away, thin smoke curled up from the leaning chimney. Old Pines whispered to Jesus, Goose flesh came on my skin, though there was still neither chill nor wind. Eyes left their sockets for the cabin. Ears burned and throbbed. Uncanny eclipse. Fear closed my mind. We were just about to pass. Pine shout to Jesus. The ground trembled as a ghost train rumbled by. The chimney fell into the cabin. Its thud was like a hollow report, ages having passed since it went off. Barlow and I were pulled out of our seats dragged to the door that had swung open. Through the dust, we saw the bricks in a mound upon the floor. Becky, if she was there, lay under them. I thought I heard a groan. Barlow, mumbling something, threw his Bible onto the pile. No one has ever touched it. Somehow we got away. My buggy was still on the road. The last thing that I remember was whipping old Dan like fury. I remember nothing after that, that is, until I reached town and folks crowded round to get the true word of it. Becky was the white woman who had two Negro sons. She's dead. They've gone away. The pines whisper to Jesus. The Bible flaps its leaves with an aimless rustle on her mound. Face Hair silver-gray, like streams of stars. Brows, recurved canoes, quivered by the ripples blown by pain. Her eyes, mist of tears, condensing on the flesh below. And her channeled muscles, 
are clustered grapes of sorrow, purple in the evening sun, nearly ripe for worms. Are you still up? Girl, good night.